So tonight we will continue our discussion on jhanas. Yesterday we spoke about the form jhanas, right? That's the first four jhanas. Now what we will speak about are known as ayatanas in Pali. Ayatana means the dimension or sphere or plane. So it's like a plane of existence. That's why you have the word salayatana, which means the six sense bases. So it also means base. And when we talk about the ayatanas, they are within the scope of the fourth jhana. Now, when we talk about the, the different uh, brahmalokas, you have the first, second, third, fourth brahmaloka, and then you have the arupa lokas. It's similar in this way that there are eight so-called jhanas, but they, the formless jhanas are extensions of the fourth jhana. Or the other way to look at it is, when you are in the fourth jhana, it is the um, foundation from where you experience infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. So just to uh, jump off from where we left off yesterday, we spoke about the fourth jhana as being where there is purity of mindfulness due to equanimity, which means at this point, the enlightenment factors have cycled through to such an extent that there is absolute, pristine, clear mindfulness. And so that mindfulness is able to just pinpoint what's going on, right? And it's, it can detect if the mind starts to waver from its object, if the attention starts to waver, and bring it back very quickly. And there's deep equanimity. The sensations in the body become more diminished to the point that they are not even felt. Uh, another common factor of the fourth jhana is that the breath seems like it's stopped, but really it's become very, very subtle, almost to the point of being imperceptible. So most of the feeling that you will experience, most of the sensation that you will experience will be from the head onwards, right? It'll be in a mental realm. And that is what we're doing now when we get into the Arupa Jhanas, when we get into infinite space. So the practice that you're doing with TWIM is the Brahma Viharas. Right? So there are four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So in one sutta, which is called the Metta Sahagata Sutta, which means accompanied by loving kindness. It talks about how the limits of loving kindness are a certain level. The limits of compassion are at a certain level. The limits of empathetic joy are at a certain level. And uh, the limits of equanimity are at a certain level. So what is the limit of loving kindness? It is up to the beautiful. When we say the beautiful, we're talking about the fourth jhana. So when you experience loving kindness, you can experience loving kindness from the first jhana all the way up to the fourth jhana. The limits of compassion is all the way from the first jhana up into infinite space. 
So what is compassion? How do you experience compassion? Well, first let's understand how do you experience loving kindness? What does loving kindness feel like? Loving kindness is the genuine wish for the happiness of other beings. May all beings be happy. And it provides this warmth, a natural glow in the heart. Right? It's loving kindness towards yourself. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be well. I deserve to be loved. I deserve to uh, be treated with kindness. And therefore, from my full cup, my heart that is full of that loving kindness, I can share it with others. And so I wish for my friend to be happy. I wish for other friends to be happy. I wish for my family members to be happy. I wish for all neutral people, people I don't even know to be happy. I wish even my so-called enemies, these are people that we have difficulties with, happiness. And then universally, I wish all beings, whether in this realm or other realms, gross or subtle, large or small, near or far, all beings, may they all be happy. And when you experience this loving kindness, you feel happy. That is true happiness. It is a conditioned kind of happiness, but it is happiness nonetheless. Because in that experience of the meditation, you are truly in the moment. When your mind rests in that feeling of loving kindness, that feeling of loving kindness is an anchor for your mind to surrender to the moment. And that is where you are happiest. So you will experience this happiness. You will experience this feeling of loving kindness from the first jhana all the way up to the fourth jhana. Indeed, it is said, if one has even a finger snaps length of loving kindness, his mind is not void of jhana. So once you experience this, then you go into sending loving kindness in all directions, in the six directions. So the six directions are forward, backward, right, left, below you, above you, and then in all directions at the same time. Now, for some people who are visually oriented, they might imagine the uh, direction filled with people and beings and animals and insects and birds and so on and so forth, and in each direction and so on. Or you might just experience a flow of this energy of loving kindness towards others. Whatever you experience is whatever you experience. It doesn't matter. If you're experiencing loving kindness above you, you might experience it going to all the devas and brahmas and so on. If you experience loving kindness below you, you might experience sending loving kindness to animals and hungry ghosts and hell realm beings and so on. But it doesn't really matter how you experience it as long as you keep radiating. Because eventually what happens is as you keep radiating in the six directions and in all directions at the same time, your mind starts to become more expansive. 
you feel a sense of spaciousness and the feeling of loving kindness becomes more diffuse. So practically speaking, this diffuse, cottony, almost like cotton candy kind of feeling of loving kindness is now compassion. And so what is compassion? Compassion is the recognition of other beings suffering and the genuine wish that they be free of that suffering. That does not mean that you become a Messiah and take on their suffering. Don't get into that savior complex. That means that you are recognizing their suffering because you recognize the suffering in your own being. And you genuinely wish that you are free of suffering and that they are free of suffering. Now, practically speaking, right, when we talk about compassion in action, oftentimes people experience fatigue from compassion. You'll see this mostly with doctors and nurses and people in certain kinds of medical industry or where, whatever it might be. And that's because they're giving too much of themselves. And compassion doesn't mean that you are a crutch for others. Compassion means that you are there. Compassion does not mean you have pity. Not pity in terms of joy, but sympathy. Sympathy is to look down on another person. Sympathy is to say, oh, I see your suffering and I feel sorry for you. No, that's terrible. That's terrible. But compassion is saying, I see you, I understand, or at the very uh, least, I recognize that you are suffering and I'm here for you, whatever you might need. Maybe you just need a shoulder to cry on. Maybe you just need a person to talk to. Maybe you just need a hug. Maybe you just need somebody to be there in your presence and don't have to say anything. This is all compassion in action. The, the one way that you can be very compassionate is just to be there for a person and listen to them. Listen without judgment. Listen without giving an answer. Some people just need to be heard. They want somebody that will listen to them. But they don't need a response. They don't need an answer. They don't need any suggestions. Just listen. Hold that space for them. So this is compassion. You know, when the Buddha talks about uh, out of compassion, I have done what a teacher can do. What is he saying? I have shown you the path to Nibbana. I have shown you the Eightfold Path. I have shown you the Four Noble Truths. I have shown you the way to meditate. But I can only show you. You yourself have to walk the path. If you do not follow instructions, then that's on you. But out of compassion, I have given you all that I can. Now you must meet me halfway and do the actual work. This is best exemplified in a sutta where somebody asks uh, the Buddha, you know, you, you talk about Nibbana, you talk about the Four Noble Truths, you talk about the Dhamma and so on. But why is it that when people listen to you, some people experience Nibbana and others don't? So the Buddha says, I'll give you an 
um, analogy. Imagine Rajagaha. There's a place called Rajagaha in India, which is now known as Rajgir. Imagine uh, there are two people who want to go to Rajagaha. And the first person comes to you and says, uh, please tell me the way to Rajagaha. And you say, okay, you go down this road and then you walk through this path through the forest and then you take a right here when you reach the stream and so on and so forth. And that's the way to Rajagaha. And then the second person comes up to you and asks you the same thing. You give them the same instructions. However, the first person doesn't actually follow the instructions. They go and then they do something else and now they're not longer in Rajagaha. They're somewhere else. But the second person follows exactly the instructions and he reaches Rajagaha. So, why is it, he asks the person, the Buddha asks the person, that the first guy didn't reach Rajagaha and the second guy did? And the person says, what can I do about that? If they followed my instructions, they would get to Rajagaha. And the Buddha says the same thing. What can I do about that? If they follow my instructions, they will get to Nibbana. There are those who do follow and there are those who don't follow. So we can be there to hold space. We can provide people all the space that they need. And that is compassion in action. But eventually they have to make moves. They have to take the steps to do what they can to come out of their own suffering. So this feeling of compassion is very soft. It's very gentle. It's diffused, not as vibratory as loving-kindness. And it is linked with this feeling of expansiveness and spaciousness. Sometimes the spaciousness is as spacious as this room. Sometimes the spaciousness can be even more expansive than that. Perhaps it's out into the field. Perhaps it's out into the countryside. Perhaps it's out throughout the city, or even beyond that, and beyond that, or encompassing the entire world, or even beyond that, right? So infinite space, infinite, it can be boundless. doesn't matter how far you reach out, that compassion and that spaciousness keep going outward. Now, the Buddha, whenever he, his schedule was such, or his routine was such, as it's mentioned in the commentaries, is that he would uh, wake up and uh, freshen up and then go for his morning walk. And then he would come and sit down and he would go into what's known as Maha Karuna Samapati. So Maha Karuna Samapati means the accomplishment or the attainment of great compassion. So he would do exactly that. He would send compassion in all directions to the entire world. And from that compassion, his mind's eye would survey the world and see who needed help, whose mind was ripe enough to experience the Dhamma. And he would go there. It was through this he was able to go to Angulimala and realize that Angulimala could be saved from his detriment or his future detriment and so on and so forth. So this experience of compassion is very powerful. If you try it first thing in the morning, it is a great pick-me-up. You know, it's a good uh, replacement for caffeine, right? It creates this 
uh, or it's known to create gamma waves in the brain, which are related to your brain's ability to process information in a more efficient way. So you're more alert, you're more aware. Now, from this infinite space, what will happen? And this is a naturally progressive process. You don't need to switch from compassion to the next thing. It happens on its own. You don't need to switch from infinite space to the next thing. It happens on its own. So what is the next thing? Infinite consciousness. And tied to this infinite consciousness is what's known as empathetic joy. So what is empathetic joy? This is coming from the word mudita. It is the ability to rejoice in the happiness of other beings. And that's why empathetic joy is a wonderful antidote to jealousy, to envy, right? So when you see somebody happy, when you see somebody experiencing laughter, somebody experiencing success in their business, somebody driving that cool car down the road, how do you feel? Do you feel jealous? Do you feel like bringing them down? Or do you rejoice in that? And you say, that's great for them. Do you generally say with the wish that I'm very happy for them, that that's good for them, right? So that is empathetic joy. Empathetic joy doesn't mean that we relish or rejoice in the success that comes from unwholesome states. Like if somebody buys a new house with a million dollars that they robbed through some kind of hack, we're not happy about that, right? We probably wouldn't even know about it. But in any case, you know, we rejoice in the wholesome success of other people. And what is one way to rejoice in the wholesome success of other people? You find out, oh, somebody has experienced jhana. Wonderful. I am so happy for them. Oh, somebody has let go of their suffering. I'm so happy for them. Somebody has experienced uh, some kind of attain, uh, an attainment. I'm so happy for them, right? That is the practice, the ability to be happy for other people. So this is tied to what's known as infinite consciousness. Now, infinite consciousness can mean a few things. At the periphery, it can mean the mind becomes so expansive, so spacious, that the mind itself encompasses that space, that spaciousness. And so it is infinite mind or it's infinite awareness. But at deeper and subtler levels, what happens is you start to see the arising and passing away of individual consciousnesses, sense-based consciousnesses. This is why in infinite consciousness, you might experience Flickering, even if your eyes are closed, you will feel some flickering. You might notice concentric circles in your mind's eye. You might notice uh, dots or stars glimmering in the background in your mind's eye. You might hear flickering or tapping in your ears. You might smell phantom smells. You might taste phantom tastes. You might feel electricity surging through your body. Some people feel like as if spiders are crawling up their skin, 
or you might start to see the gaps between your thoughts. All of these are different manifestations of infinite consciousness. And what is going on there is that the mind's attention becomes very, very sharp, that it starts to see the iota of consciousnesses arising and passing away, individual consciousnesses arising and passing away. And in reality, what, it is, what is going on is you're seeing contact, internal contact. So contact, 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 contact. You keep seeing this, and it's not in your control. It happens as a result of causes and conditions. And eventually what happens is you start to realize that, oh, this is impermanent. There is the arising of one consciousness and the passing away of that consciousness. There's the arising of another consciousness and the passing away of that other consciousness. And so you realize the true nature of impermanence. Eventually it becomes tiresome. It becomes boring. It's suffering, right? You experience dukkha in that moment. And then you see that there is no controller here. I am not causing this flickering to happen. I am not causing the arising and passing away to happen. It is happening due to impersonal causes and conditions. And therefore you see anatta. You see the impersonal nature of all conditioned experience. This then leads you into where the flickering or the arising and passing away starts to slow down and it is replaced by what's known as nothingness. And tied to that nothingness is what's known as equanimity, upeka. So what is this equanimity? How do you experience this equanimity? Equanimity is calmness. Equanimity is serenity. Equanimity is balance. Equanimity is being okay with whatever is happening. It is total, radical acceptance of everything as it actually is. And it is experienced in terms of the mind as being very calm, as being very tranquil, as being very collected. And this equanimity is an antidote for restlessness in daily life. It is an antidote for any kind of craving that arises in daily life. Let's say you're driving down the road on your way to work and you find yourself in traffic. How does your mind respond? Does it feel agitated? Does it feel anxious? Does it feel jittery? If it does, what can you do? Come back to the present moment and start radiating equanimity to yourself. You can start with saying, may I be calm? May I be collected? May I be at peace? May all beings be calm. May all beings be collected. May all beings be at peace. This starts to downshift your mental activity into that equanimity. And so tied with this equanimity, the limit of equanimity is nothingness or no thingness. Here the mind is totally internalized. Here the mind remains in this blank canvas, which can be manifested in the mind as 
totally dark space or a white space or a blue space or any kind of space where absolutely nothing is going on. For miles around in your mind, absolutely nothing is going around, going on. It is just quietness. Now, while you're here, that feeling of equanimity that you're radiating might not be as strong in the radiating as loving kindness might be, or the other Brahma Viharas might be. It might just be trickles of equanimity being sent out, and that's okay. In fact, I would say when you're sending equanimity, it's more like a pebble that you drop into the lake and you start to notice this, the, the surface starting to have ripples, right? And eventually those ripples start to fade away and you're left with stillness again. So you drop another pebble, which is you drop another intention of equanimity and that creates more ripples on the surface of the lake. And eventually that fades away. You do that over and over until the mind doesn't want to do anymore. And you'll know the mind doesn't want to do anymore because it feels too tense. So at that point, there is just stillness. Now we are getting into the territory of the eighth jhana, which is neither perception nor non-perception. So before we get into neither perception nor non-perception, we have to understand what is that stillness that we are experiencing. That stillness we're experiencing is just mind itself. Now there are layers to this, there are levels to this. You've all heard about, at least peripherally, the quiet mind. But there's layers to this. The first level is just mind. That is to say, mind watching mind. So the mind turns in on itself and it's just watching. There might still be activity there. There might still be uh, sounds in the background. There might still be little percolations in the mind there. But the mind is just observing itself. Eventually, that starts to quiet down into this space called neither perception nor non-perception. What is neither perception nor non-perception? Let's take the word perception and understand what it means. Perception is the ability to recognize what it is that you've experienced before. Because perception is rooted in memory. Perception is that part of the mind that says, oh, this is the color red, or this is an oak tree, or that's the number four, or the sky has uh, cumulus clouds, or whatever it is. So feeling or experience is going on, but that which labels the experience is perception. So that perception is the ability to remember, to recognize what is going on. So neither perception nor non-perception can also be understood as neither recognition nor non-recognition, neither comprehension nor non-comprehension. Because this 
space of neither perception or non-perception is very fuzzy. It's like being in a hypnagogic state. It's like you are in you are asleep, but you're awake at the same time. There's all kinds of random thoughts and images and ideas that come about, right? It's, it's almost like, what am I thinking here? What exactly is going on here? You're not able to really recognize what it is that the mind is trying to make sense of because it doesn't make any sense. All of these different formations percolate up into these thought bubbles. And as soon as you try to look at them, as soon as you try to make sense of them, guess what? Now you are perceiving, which means you are no longer in neither perception nor non-perception. You are in full perception. So stay with it. Go with the flow. Don't, don't try to figure out what's going on. Just let the mind be. That's why I say at this point, don't do anything. That is the most difficult instruction that people can apply. It sounds so simple, but the mind wants to do something. Oh, maybe I need to tweak a little bit of my equanimity. Maybe I need a little bit more joy, you know, or maybe I should observe what's going on very closely. No, don't do anything. Absolutely nothing. If I say just rest, what's going to happen? Your mind's going to say, okay, I need to rest. What does that rest mean? How does the rest feel like? If I say just observe, then you're going to think, okay, what do I observe? How do I observe? Is there a way to observe this or not observe that? I'm saying don't do anything. Right? So in that space, eventually, the mind starts to sink down further. It's like the fog clears, the neither perception or non-perception clears into now what is quiet mind. So this quiet mind is the Pabhasar Chitta. It is the luminous mind. And when we say luminous, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is white space or light or something in your mind's eye. All it means is that it is fully aware. It has clarity of mindfulness, complete clarity. So in this quiet mind, things might still pop up once in a while. And these are the sankharas. These are formations or what I call proto-thoughts. Little bubbling up of ideas and patterns that before they can come up to the surface of the pool and turn into big uh, cognizable thoughts, they're just here. And that's the space you are in when you are in neither perception nor non-perception. So in this quiet mind, there is nothing but just, just mind, right? And eventually, all of those different bubbling up, all of that, they start to diminish. They start to dissipate. And now you're in what's known as still mind or very clear mind where absolutely not even one percolation happens. And you can stay in this state and it feels like you're frozen. Feels like the mind is just not frozen in the sense that you're locked into something. It just feels like, wow, there was stuff going on and everything just went on to pause. And everything became very still all of a sudden. 
And in that space, you don't do anything either. You just are present, right? You are surrendering to what is going on. And you allow that to happen deeper and deeper and deeper. There's nothing you can do to get to that space. It will happen as soon as you surrender any idea of doing something. And in that stillness, in that still mind, you start to go even deeper into what's known as, or what I call, uh, the doorway to the signless. And in this doorway to the signless, it feels like you have hit a wall. Not in a negative way, but it's like you're walking through some kind of portal. right? And sometimes it feels like you're seeing... You know, when you see static on, on the old television sets, you know, when there's nothing's going on, you see that. Or you see some bright yellowish green wall or something, some kind of wall of light. And that is the doorway into the signless. Now, while you're here, what do you do? Nothing. You don't do anything. If at all you just let go if your mind feels like it wants to go into it you let go of that as well it will merge through or it will submerge into that wall and eventually on the other side you get into what's known as animita samadhi animita means so nimita means sign or object Anamita means objectless or signless collectedness of mind. Anamita samadhi. And this signless collectedness of mind means that there is absolutely no object taken. So then what is the difference between nothingness and signless collectedness of mind? In nothingness, equanimity is taken as the object. In signless collectedness of mind, the mind doesn't land on anything. It is just pure awareness dependent upon mind. That's it. And the analogy that I use here is you imagine taking a flashlight and pointing it up into the sky. Now imagine you have different pieces, pieces of cellophane, different colors. You have eight different colors. Right? And so these are all of the different jhanas. You take away each of the cellophane, and now all you have left is the light. And it's pointing directly up into the sky, all the way up into space. Now, for the purposes of understanding, imagine that that light keeps going on, and it doesn't land on anything. There's no meteorite, there's no asteroid, there's no quasars, there's no stars, there's no, nothing. It just keeps going. Right? keeps going. That is the awareness in the signless collectedness of mind. It doesn't take anything as an object. It doesn't land on anything. It is just awareness and only awareness. Awareness of what? Just awareness. Pure awareness. Now, using that analogy, eventually what happens? The battery in the flash flashlight runs out. That is the formations that continue to keep this awareness going. So long as you don't allow the mind 
to pay attention to the formations and just stay in that silence collectedness of mind, those formations will diminish even further. The last set of formations that arise in this space are related to the sense of identity. And this is why there is fear sometimes in this space, because the identity is being loosened up, because the sense of self feels like it's going to die. And that's okay. If it goes away, it goes away. But you, the so-called you, that is the mind observing what's going on, you try to relax it. You try to let it go. And what happens when you do that? It tightens up even more. So in this signless state of mind, this signless collectedness of mind, you don't have to relax. You don't have to do anything. Again, don't do anything. In the very seeing of something coming up, that itself is dissipating. In Tibetan Buddhism, this is known as self-liberating thoughts. The thoughts, the formations, liberate themselves. They go away because there's no fuel of attention being given to them. Now, in this space, eventually, as all the formations die down, and as the battery runs out, what happens? The light switches off. And now you have cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. Now, in this experience of cessation, you won't know that you are in cessation. But when you come out of it, your mind will realize something had happened. There was a gap in your awareness. There was some missing footage in the film reel. There was a 404 error, 404 not found, right? And so when you come out of that space, your mind would have touched or could have possibly touched the Nibbana Dhatu, that is the Nibbana element. As a result of experiencing Nibbana, your mind experiences extreme amounts of clarity and joy and happiness and relief. So in this process, the mind's contact with Nibbana is unconditioned. It is, as the suttas say, the three kinds of contact. The signless contact, the undirected contact, and the empty or void contact. Why are they called this? It is signless because it takes nothing as an object, because it sees everything as impermanent. It is undirected because it is not interested in anything. It doesn't crave for anything. And therefore, it, is, it sees dukkha in everything. And therefore, it is undirected. It is void or empty. Empty of what? Empty of taking anything personally because it realizes that everything is impersonal. So this contact, which is unconditioned, gives rise to a conditioned feeling of joy and relief and so on. And as a result of which, when you come out of the meditation, what's the first thing you do? Oh, wow, what was that? That was amazing, right? You see certain things, and then your mind experiences all this joy, 
And so now the formations come to be. So the order in which they cease, the types of formations that cease, is in this way. In the second jhana, the verbal formations cease. What does that mean? The process of intentionally thinking about this or that ceases. In the fourth jhana, the bodily formations cease, which means now you are more in the mental level. In cessation or prior to cessation, mental formations cease, which means mental formations that allow you to feel and perceive cease. And when the mind boots back up, it comes back up in the reverse order. Mental formations arise first. There is the feeling of joy and happiness. There is some feeling of being present again in the body. And then there is, oh, wow, what was that? That is the verbal formations coming online. And then when you come out of this, you will see for yourself, everything seems fresh, everything seems new, the colors are brighter, the sky is bluer, you feel like you're floating on cloud nine. And if this happens, you know, you come into the interview, you say, I've had this experience, I say, great, enjoy it, take it easy. When you're ready to go back into meditation, meditate again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, right? Now, not every cessation will mean that you've experienced Nibbana. Some cessations are just the mind drops into cessation, it has clarity, and it's dropped some levels of suffering. For cessation to then have been followed by Nibbana, that means there is some kind of possible attainment that could have happened. The path and the fruition of one or more of these four attainments. So they are stream entry, they are uh, once returner, non-returner, and fully awakened, right? So sometimes people have fear of that too. They're like, uh, I don't want to go any deeper than this because what does that mean about my relationships with people? What does that mean uh, in regards to my uh, intimate intimacy with my spouse or my partner and all of that. Hey, guess what? If you have fear about it, it's not going to happen. So relax. <laughs> no big deal. You can't accidentally slip into becoming an anagami or an arahat. So this is the process. This is what happens in the meditation. But the key to understanding all of this is it requires all the proper ingredients, namely sila, right? Being able to keep your precepts all the time. Being attentive to every moment as it arises and noticing what's going on in your mind in relation to experiences. Is there craving or is the mind free of craving in that moment? If there is craving, are you able to let it go? Because the more you're able to let go in daily living, the easier the meditation flows. And the more you're able to let go in the meditation, the easier it becomes to let go in daily living. So this feedback loop system is ingrained in the practice of the Dhamma. And eventually, when the causes and conditions are ripe, your mind lets go completely 
and drops certain fetters. And after dropping those fetters, your mind experiences a certain attainment. Now, your mind is your teacher. Your mind will tell you what is going on. Your mind will let you know, okay, there is still a tinge of craving or there's still a tinge of aversion or there is no more craving here. There is no more aversion, but there's still a tinge of restlessness or there's still a tinge of conceit or whatever it might be. So trust in your mind and give it space, give it time, experiment with all of the different experiences. Get yourself involved in difficult situations and see how your mind reacts or responds to them. And then you, you will know for certainty where you are on the path. Now, are there any questions? So during the door, the door to the signless, yeah. can it be like really energetic and kind of intense? Yes. Okay. Vibratory. Yeah, yeah, like almost like a like a sp light spaceship is trying to yes take you in. Okay. Okay. <laughs> how do you, how do you not do stuff then? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, just merge into it. Let the mind just like seep into it. Let the mind just surrender to it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Actually, there are so many lights that we experience during meditation at different states. I kind of... Um, so... The lights that we experience at the infinite consciousness are more flickery, is that right? And then there's another possibly of light experience at the base of nothingness, which is more soft blue. And so this door to uh, signless is the one that is zoom zoom like spaceship yeah. all right okay <laughs> no one told us that earlier <laughs> okay um i'm also very curious about um the process for those who experience nibbana without going through all the eight jhanas which means the nibbana experience at the first or second or third jhana um because there's talk about uh, you don't need cessation for experience Nibbana. So I'm just wondering what's your view on that? Well, from the first jhana onwards, you can experience cessation and therefore Nibbana. Oh, so you still experience cessation? Yes. Okay. And um, would you say that those that experience uh, Nibbana at lower jhana possibly have actually been meditating for a while and they've been purifying some of the... Uh, purifying their mind is due to that kind of um, practice? Not necessarily. Because, uh, it depends on their faculties. And so that brings into uh, play the, the seven types of people. So mm. what that means is seven types of persons that the Buddha has talked about. So there is the 
the faith follower, there's the Dhamma follower, there's the one uh, attained to view, there's one liberated by faith, there's uh, one who is, uh, you know, uh, a body witness, uh, one who is, uh, you know, liberated in one way or liberated in both ways, you know, all of these different things. So somebody who experiences Nibbana from the first jhana to the fourth jhana is somebody who is liberated by wisdom, Panyavanuti. Somebody who experiences uh, Nibbana from any of the jhanas after that, you know, then they are somebody who can be um, a body witness. Because they could be a sotapanna, or they could be a... So I, I have to clarify this, actually. Liberated by wisdom means you attain arahatship from one jhana, for jhana one, all the way to the fourth jhana. But somebody who is uh, liberated by uh, both ways is somebody who has attained arahatship after having gone through the first four jhanas and then all the way up to the eighth jhana. And somebody who is a body witness, a kaya viti, is somebody who goes through and touches with their kaya, its body, but really it's the mental body, any of the four jhanas, any of the uh, four arupa jhanas, experienced cessation, experienced nibbana, but not yet attained arhatshu. What do you eat us? So it all depends upon the person's faculties. Okay. Um, one more question. How do you uh, explain the difference between the experience of the equanimity on the fourth jhana and the deeper equanimity at the base of nothingness? Well, in this case, the fourth jhana, the equanimity is just in the background. It's not taken as an object. But in... <clears throat> In nothingness, equanimity is in the foreground. It is the object. It is the thing. Ah, okay. Okay. One more. <laughs> um, a shock. Any shock? <laughs> okay, let's talk about um, Janagami and the one seeder. Okay. Okay. Um, I heard one of your talk is that the one seeder come back as human. But Janagami doesn't, right? So, uh, so a one-seater is somebody who is a sotapanna, uh, who comes back one more time in the human realm. Mm. And a janagami is somebody who is a sotapanna or a sakadagami, who practices jhana consistently, and then at the end of their life attains to that jhana, hence goes into that brahmaloka, but will never come back again into the sensual realms. The thing about an anagami, what does an anagami mean? An anagami is someone who will never come back to the sensual realms. That doesn't mean that they have one more lifetime left. Mm. They can have more lifetimes in the Brahma Lokas, mm. in the abo uh, pure abodes, mm. in the Arupa Lokas, mm. until they attain Arhatship and mm. final Nirvana. Mm. So a one-seater Sotapanna, uh, or somebody who comes back one more time, from there, in that human life, they will attain arahatship, full awakening. But a janagami is somebody who is a sotapanna or a sakadagami, 
who attains jhana, practices consistently jhana, and then at the end of their life enters into jhana because of the consistent practice, and then enters into the corresponding loka or realm related to that jhana, and is now an anagami there, which means they will never come back again. Mm. But from there, they might still have more work more, more life. left to do. Oh, tougher. <laughs> um, I don't believe there's any talk about how to become a one-seater in the sutta. Yeah, because it, 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 you cannot decide whether you want to be a one-seater or you want to be uh, a kolongala. It happens dependent upon your karma. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, given there are different ways for um, being to be liberated, um, as explained, how does one know um, what to focus on in terms of their meditation jhana practice? Like, for example, um, say with intensive retreats like this, we can try to um, go all the way up um, to try to experience the different jhanas and to the, the eighth dimension or we can focus on maybe the f first four like it seems I know there's like depending on the karmic sort of condition as well but it seems like there's a bit of a choice as well so how, how does one sort of choose you know what to focus on in their, in their practice that is not the question the, the, the question should be how much should I let go in order to experience Nibbana? <laughs> and that's the answer. It depends on how much you let go. It's not about which jhana you have to be in or where you have to be in or where to focus on. It's more about how much can you keep letting go. So even letting go of the need to be in any kind of state, even letting go of the need to have Nibbana. Letting go, letting go, letting go just to clarify my understanding of what you just said so uh, um, I understand it that it looks like say for any any moment like if we um, say meditate we just go with the moment and see what comes up and then um, letting go um, of any hindrances and letting go of the need to control and just let go let it be and, but apply the skillfulness of you know like what um, what we've learned and what you've taught and um, um, and then just continue to let 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 things go and let it be and just see what comes up. That's pretty much what it, the process yeah, looks be like. And open to whatever is happening and letting go whenever unwholesome states arise. Okay, thank you. Oh, one more question. You mentioned about the different like the limitations of. Um, the Brahma Viharas, and I vaguely recall, um, I'm not sure if it's in the Abhidharma, um, they are referred as the four immeasurables, or the like the two immeasurable, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit confused about them being immeasurable, but um, at the same time having that limit. When we say limit, we're saying that you can only experience it up until this particular jhana. So they're not limited in that sense. What we're saying is, they are experienced up until the fourth jhana, or up until infinite space. But they're immeasurable because when you send them out, they're infinite, they're immeasurable in how far you can send them out. So vertically, 
if you think about the jhanas, they're limited to this particular step in the ladder. But laterally, they're infinite, immeasurable. So uh, the Buddha was enlightened under a uh, Bodhi tree outside, and I think he spent a lot of time outside traveling. Do you think that it's easier to get into jhana if you meditate outside versus inside? I think this, again, depends on the person's uh, habits and their faculties. Some people are more tuned to being outside and experiencing uh, greater clarity. That could be by virtue of the fact that there's fresh air, sunlight, and so on and so forth. Uh, but some people uh, might be okay with being in a hut or being in a cave. You know, uh, it just depends again. On yeah, a cave could be sort of like inside, outside, both. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah, yeah. But it depends how deep you go into the cave. <laughs> True. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Um, there's uh, with the compassion practice I feel that in within this uh, framework this is an internal experience that we have while meditating <clears throat> in uh, a lot of um, you know Mahayana circles like in Japan or wherever also people who are engaged with you know engaged Buddhism or that kind of thing people are feeling well we have to do more to help beings and so focusing the practice on sending compassion, praying for peace, all this kind of activity based on a view that uh, if I uh, increase the compassion myself and send that out infinitely throughout the universe, it will actually touch all the beings who are in that universe and help them in some way. So could you please speak to, a little bit to that? I think uh, there is some truth to that, some validity to it in the sense that uh you know, when you're with uh, a group and you send loving kindness to them, that you can actually feel it. I mean, you can try it out for yourself and see, like when you meditate in a group, you feel the group energy when they're filled with loving kindness or compassion. Uh, I mean, these are all, um, you know, I mean, there's you can't really scientifically prove all of this, but there are anecdotes about people who, you know, who've, who've uh, sent out compassion in all in all directions and then they thought about somebody and then you know they decided to give them a call and they called them and that person was like oh I was just thinking about you you know so there's something about the morphic field or the morphogenetic field which is like it has an effect everything that you do has some kind of an effect so if you can keep your aura around you filled with loving kindness wherever you go you will find that no matter where you are, your situation is pretty much okay. And I think, uh, you know, you can see it in the sense of like, you have two different people, let's say, who go to the same place, right? Uh, they're taking a vacation to going to the same city. One person has good thoughts, has a lot of loving kindness, has a lot of compassion, has a lot of equanimity. And so as soon as they enter the airport, they're friendly with the uh, check-in person and the person says hey let me upgrade you to you know business class or something like that and then you go and 
to go to TSA and TSA smiles at you, you know, and uh, you, know, you go through check-in and all of that security and everything and everything's great, even before you get to the city. And when you're at the city, there's people there to welcome you and you're happy and all of that and everything works smoothly. The second person is grumpy or depressed or anxious or thinking about this or that, has lack of mindfulness, goes to the check-in, uh, gets distracted by what the check-in person is saying, the check-in person gets upset by maybe how they're perceiving them, and then they make a mistake in uh, putting on the backpack. So now when they get into T TSA, TSA looks at them and is suspicious, call them out of line, you know, do a whole uh, pat and their pat down and everything, get on the flight, service is not that great, we get into the city, guess what, their bag is lost. Why? Because they distracted the check-in guy, right? So now they have to deal with that, then they're in the taxi, they go to the hotel, something or another happens. Same city, same situation, just in terms of mindset. So it does have an effect internally and as a result of our behavior from it, externally as well. Thank you. Since you mentioned mindset, is that the same as mood? Mindset and mood are two different things. Mood is a collection of similar kinds of emotions that is setting the mood for the day. Mindset is a collection of similar kinds of thoughts that create a certain mind or mental frame. So the thing about compassion is I have trouble getting into that jhana because it just slips to equanimity. Do you have any recommendations on how to maybe stay with metta longer, stay yeah. in the fourth jhana longer, or stay with compassion longer? Yeah, so if you want to exercise that ability, then it's all about uh, using your intention. So, so, I mean, when you're practicing just in regular practice on a retreat, what happens is your mind goes to the point of lowest tension, as Venerable Methananda would say. So, if equanimity seems that way for some people, they'll go directly to equanimity. Like, they'll go through the jhanas and kind of incline or slope right through equanimity. But if you're doing this as a practice to kind of stay in one territory, you use your intention and you say, okay, I'm going to practice now. And I'm going to make it a point. My mind will no will not go higher than the fifth jhana, or will no will not go deeper than just metta or compassion. You try that, and it might take a few times, but eventually you get there. Okay, thank you. And I um, also remember at a retreat that we did. Uh, quite a while ago, a year and a half ago, you mentioned that um, there was the, the, the discussion about the limits of each one of the Brahma Viharas, and you challenged us to uh, start the practice in equanimity or start in the first jhana in compassion instead of in you know loving kindness and see whether you could take it f from the first jhana to its limit. And, uh, and several of us did that 
during that retreat. And so that's just another way also, I think maybe, mm. you know, per your teaching to, uh, to also get a grip on how to do one of the, Bra of the Brahma Viharas mm. in isolation. Yeah. I don't really have a question, but I'll just ask something. Um, so just talking more about jhanas. <laughs> think of something on the spot. Um, is there a... So, the, so I, I've read this, I think, in different places, the Buddha's meditation schedule. You're talking about, you know, he would wake up and then... Um, send compassion to all beings. Uh, he'd also like meditate in the early morning, like 1 a.m. or like 3 a.m. or something, mm -hmm. right? Is there something special about those like early morning hours? Yeah, because it's so quiet, you know? The world is completely silent. So they say psychically, even in the, in the Hindu traditions, they call it Rama Murta, which is this 90-minute... 45 minutes or 90 minutes, I can't remember exactly, but in any case, it's like just an hour and a half before sunrise. So it's anywhere from 3.30 to 5 o'clock in those, in those times. Um, does that mean that you should be doing that? Uh, you can, as long as you're getting enough sleep. Yeah. So. If you want to work your schedule in that way, then make sure you're getting enough sleep as well. Remember, the Buddha is the Buddha. So, and plus, I would say take that with a grain of salt. Like, if it says he slept for one hour a day, like try doing that. See how it goes. You know, um, not recommended. wondering how to ask the question. Um, yesterday, I believe you mentioned something about meditation is accumulation. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate that again? It's a cumulative process, which means just basically the more you meditate, the more it has an effect on your daily living, and the more it has an effect on your uh, subsequent meditations. That's it. So in other words, like as long as you keep routine practice, it has an effect. It builds on the previous practice but if you're out of practice and you haven't meditated for a week or you haven't meditated for a month then there's no point in doing it you need everyday consistent practice that builds upon the previous day or the previous session okay thank you um have you come across students um that they uh on like there might be meditation object other than Brahma Viharas that's more suitable for um, people with other temperaments. Yeah, actually, uh, the commentaries talk about this, where there's the uh, different kinds of meditation objects depending upon the person's state of mind. So if they're more speculative, then breathing might be helpful. If they are more lustful, then the asuba practices might be helpful. Uh, you know, if they're having more aversion, then loving kindness might be more helpful and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, has it been, like, is it sort of consistent with your observation of the students and um, other practitioners? Uh, 
I think with the Brahma Viharas, it's pretty universal because the, the world we're living in today, we need lots and lots of loving kindness no matter what. Mm. There's not a single person in this world who has perfect loving kindness, right? So we can always use more loving kindness. I mean, you just watch the news. Not mm. that you shouldn't, but you watch the news and you'll see like the world is just, you know, it needs loving kindness. So I think, uh, universally speaking, it can be applied to any kind of mindset. But if somebody wants to practice with breath, they can do that. If they want to practice with a suba, they can do that. Um, it just depends upon their temperament. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. Um, my first one is... Um, Using uh, the fetter, the ten fetter model, and looking at the fetters and seeing in retrospect, okay, let's see, these fetters seem to be not present, and then what comes next? And, and in other words, what, mapping out uh, the what, what lies ahead, uh, and then focusing. Let's say we're focusing on uh, sense desire and, and aversion, uh, and then at some point that would no longer be operative, and then be focusing on the conceit and the restlessness, etc. So um, using that roadmap in that way, is, can that be uh, useful uh, for anybody? Or is that, uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that the Ten Fetter model is a great sort of uh, mirror of the Dhamma, right? Like, like there is a, in again, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, there is something called the mirror of the Dhamma, which is how do you know somebody is a Sotapama, a stream enter? It's when they have total conviction in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So using the fetter model, uh, the 10 fetter model, you can actually see a reflection of your own mind. Like, where is it exactly? So that's the, the beautiful utility of that model. I think it's, I mean, you can't really change it at all. It's, it, it is really like aligned to the different um, uh, attainments. Thanks. So would there be, so would it be, let's say, more effective or, or uh, uh, quick? to focus on what's stri straight ahead as opposed to taking on the whole bunch at once kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, I would say that's a good yeah. way of looking at uh -huh. it, like sequentially, sequ sequentially. Uh -huh. because also, um, and this isn't mentioned in the suttas, but the way you look at like the anagami, right? You have let go of the first uh, five lower fetters, but then there's five other fetters on the way to arahatship. So somebody might let go of restlessness, but they might still have conceit. Right. And somebody lets go of conceit, but then I'd select craving for existence. I mean, I'm just giving an example, but usually conceit is the basis for restlessness, craving for exist, uh, existence in the form realm or formless mm -hmm. realm. And ignorance is the last to go for an arahat. So you could say that there are anagamis on the way to arahatship. Mm. Right? So uh, they could be like on the path to arahatship until they actually uh, complete the path. So somebody could have actually no more conceit, but still uh, have have ignorance, or would it just be greatly attenuated as there? It would be greatly attenuated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, then the uh, the other one is just sort of reflecting on why people start to practice, and seeing like for so there there are those who uh, just see the suffering and absolutely want out. And so there's a certain quality to, to those kinds of practitioners. Hair on fire comes to yeah. mind. Um, and, but then there are others who, and I forget what they all might be, but it could be, uh, uh, you know, just a fascination with the mind and how it all works or 
etc. So, uh, from a practical viewpoint, do you have any uh, views about um, how to work with those different motivations or yeah, yeah that yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, the hair on fire one, I think, is the best way to do it, right? Because yeah. it's like, okay, there is a lot of suffering. I'm going to just go into the cave and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to learn the Dhamma and then come out and are out. Mm -hmm. right? um, but how likely is that to happen? Yeah. So it uh, depends on the person's mental framework as well. Uh, you look at it from the context of the Sutta, which talks about the four paths to the Dhamma, the four ways to get to the Dhamma. You start with Vipassana and get into Samatha, or you start with Samatha and get into Vipassana, or Samatha and Vipassana are yoked together, or you have agitation about the Dhamma. That's the hair on fire. <laughs> That's what happened with uh, uh, Ananda. right? So Ananda had to basically become an Arahant, and he was walking around, pacing about, what am I going to do? Finally, he lets go, and just before his head hits the pillow, he becomes an Arahant. So, uh, Vipassana to Samatha, what does that mean? Somebody is more logical, more interested in understanding how the mind works, and as a result, then deepens their focus. Or somebody starts with wanting greater degrees of clarity and relaxation and serenity, and then starts to see how the mind works. Or somebody comes to twin, which is this together. Yeah. So, um, again, it's really based on a person's um, mental framework and where their life has led them towards. So maybe somebody who is a, a neuroscience, yeah. and I'm being very, very like general here, they might be more uh, inclined to doing self-inquiry or vipassana because they're more logical. Uh, somebody who comes from a more mystical tradition might want to just get into the higher states of jhanas and then start to get into vipassana. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, John. You triggered some questions for me too. So, um, in the in the suttas or in in the studies that I've done, I've heard of other other things that arahants go through. So, like um, the burning of the thickets, uh, the crossing of the shore. Um, you know, you leave behind the raft and. Uh, you develop, you discover your, you know, lineage. Um, what else is there? Uh, these these other things. So are those part of the qualifications of what happens to become an arahant, or is it just in the ten fetter model where you drop all the f all the five top ones after you've gotten anagami? It is basically dropping all ten fetters to get into arahantship. Mm -hmm. And all the things that you just said mm -hmm. are just beautiful, fancy, illustrative descriptions. Uh -huh. The great analogies of it. That's it. But there's nothing to do except to let go of conceit and let go of ignorance. Everything else will fall. Okay. Then those other things, are they indicative of particular... Um, um, fetters in the top five? Yeah, for example, dropping away the draft. Uh -huh. uh, sorry, raft. Uh -huh. is, uh, what does that mean? Letting go of the conceit about the dhamma. Uh -huh. Right, right. Or burning through the thickets. Uh -huh. That's letting go of, you know, ignorance. Uh -huh. And so on. Um, crossing the flood. Uh -huh. right? 
So all of these are just uh, uh, metaphors for dropping these different fetters. Can they be actual experiences? Perceived that way? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because they're more about cultivating wisdom. They're more about yeah. an experience where the mind... First of all, what does it mean to be an Arhat? What does it mean? It means that your understanding of the Dhamma is perfect. Perfect. Like 110 over 100. Okay. okay. Which means that if somebody were to look at dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths, their mind looks at that and it's like, it all makes sense. You don't even have to say a word. Yeah, that would be that too. Uh huh. Right. right? That's what it is. All the other stuff is just, you know, fancy words. So often in the suttas, there are stories of people who attained arahantship without ever studying the Dhamma. They just, you know, they just heard because something and boom. It all just came to them. Boom, it all just came to them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and do they get the whole, fact, it's easier for the them. whole download? <laughs> it's easier for them to uh -huh. become arahants because uh -huh. they have no preconceived notions of what that means. Oh, yeah, okay. All right, good. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I got to ask these questions. Thanks, John. Thank you. So I'm, I'm not sure if I was understanding your answer to John's question properly, but does X suggest you could be like a... Wait, so, so you could be a, a Sotapanna, but then have dropped some of the fetters related to Anagamihood, but not all of them? So you're like a Sotapanna um, and a half? No, no, no. Thing? So, so for Sotapanna, for sure, it means you've at, at least you've dropped the doubt in the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha. Okay. So that's what the Buddha says. Somebody, for somebody to be a stream entry, it means that they have absolute faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Um, but that doesn't mean that they've dropped conceit or they've dropped uh, restlessness. They still have work to do with that. What I mean is, is could, could you, for example, draw, say someone is already a Sotapanna, could they, like, do you just... Uh, at the next achievement, do you just jump to all the fetters, jump to having all dropped all the fetters associated with anagami-ness, or can you drop some of them but not all of them? Right. Uh, there are um, indications in the sutta, like for example, you have the um, uh, Kondonya and the first five, basically the first five bhikkhus, uh, who went from stream entry to arhatship. So it was like they just dropped everything in a bunch. So first they dropped any kind of doubt in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and they came to the understanding that this whole process is impersonal. And then afterwards, everything else dropped when they became arhats. So it's not like you have to go through each successive step if it's if we are to interpret the suttas in that way. Okay, I see. So. <clears throat> Let me see. Wait, so, so so how many fetters are dropped at this stage of anagamihood? Five. The first five. Okay. So could someone drop, say, like seven? You don't know? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think the way to look at it is first you need to get to anagami before you can look at the seven. Like, either it's one or the other. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because 
all of them are very much interconnected. The first, I mean, the last five fetters are interconnected. The ignorance gives rise to conceit. The conceit gives rise to restlessness, craving for this and craving for that. Okay, I see. Okay, thank you. Um, got a follow-up question um, based on the previous um, conversation, I think, from John and myself, uh, about because um, the different people's motivations around their practice and how their entry point and their different temperament. Um, so in terms of practically speaking, day, after we finish your retreat in the daily life, um, for example, so I've followed your guided meditation, with starting with the treatment method, and then and then contemplating on the um, five aggregates as well, or can continue with this type of what we do on the retreat, or can switch to um, observing the the breath, um, depending on the need of the situation. And I tend to have a quite a analytical mind, so sometimes like observing taking an object that's more real rather than imagined like can be helpful so i'm just thinking because of all those factors at play what is there an effective way of sort of um um plan out a strategy of a day-to-day type of um practice because of i can choose other ways or a combination of them what how do one go about doing that so um all of the material that's out there is just available for you to pick and choose. But once you pick and choose, you go about it until you perfect it. Okay, so stick to one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stick to one. Okay. Okay, thank you. Mm. Okay, we'll share some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free, and the fears struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sarah, Buddha,